Father, we pray that what You say to us this morning, we would be ready to act upon it. Thank You for Joel, for the message that You give him, for the Word that You have given us. Father, we pray that uh, all that is said and done here this morning would be pleasing to You. We pray now that the things that block You out would be pushed aside so that we could clearly hear what You have to tell us. And we'll praise You when we leave here knowing that You have visited us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. If you would turn in your scriptures to Luke chapter 11. While you're doing that, let me tell you, I appreciate you indulging that bit of foolishness. We could think of no more appropriate way to begin a message on shallowness than that song. And on the way we tend, good grief, this service is filling up. On the way we tend to take something that speaks to our carnal minds, that speaks to our flesh, and substitute that thing and watch it deteriorate and watch us deteriorate along with it. Let me just share something with you. Astrology was not always the shallow, silly thing it is now. Astrology was once a way, among other ways, to try to discern, before we had Jesus Christ, to try to discern the divine direction for our lives. If you will turn in uh, Matthew to chapter 2, you will see that in verse 2, the Magi had arrived in Jerusalem saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star in the east and have come to worship him. See, in gospel times, God even used the heavens to give people messages from him. But those signs and wonders have become in this day and age a way to get on first base with a girl, a way to invest our time so that we can get rich quick and so on and so forth, you see. We have this record of clinging to what is spectacular and missing the point eventually completely. Astrology these days has all significance of divinity removed. And it's simply a game in which we tend to concentrate on our own characteristics. Well, let's read the scripture for this morning. In Luke chapter 11, you remember last week, Jesus had cast out the demon in in, uh, verse 14. Cast out a demon... And it became that when the demon had gone out, the dumb man spoke and the multitudes marveled. And then there were two groups, basically, of people. One that accused him of casting out demons by Beelzebul. And he spoke to that, and we spoke about that last week. But this week, others, to test him, were demanding of him a sign from heaven. It says in the Bible, you can read the literal translation, others tempting a sign out of heaven. They were more connected with the sign than they were with him. They were more wanting the sign than they wanted him. He was just a tool. Sought from him. Not sought him. Sought from him. Now as the crowds were increasing, starting with verse 29, 
he began to say, this is a wicked generation. It seeks for a sign, yet no sign shall be given to it but the sign of Jonah. For just as Jonah became the sign to the Ninevites, so shall the Son of Man be to this generation. The Queen of the South, that's the Queen of Sheba, I'll talk about her in a minute, shall rise up with the men of this generation at the judgment. Well, wait a minute. Let's just take those first two, okay? Let me just take those first two and talk about that for a while. The people who seek a sign, the wicked generation. And the word wicked does not mean awful or bad or bad to the core. It means perverted. It means missing the point. It means wanting something for ourselves, but yet not being able to get it. And what Jesus is simply saying is those people who ask for a miracle from God in order to believe, or those people who would put their own desires in front, who would say, God, if you do this for me, then I will believe in you, are missing the point. God does give signs and wonders. I am one, and you are people who have experienced wonders directly from God. And so I do not want any part of this sermon to cast doubt on the experiences that you have had directly from God. God has shown you things. God has answered your prayers in a wonderful and significant way, and He always will. He will always be with you to show you Himself. But there comes a point in our Christian walk when we begin to cling more to the answers than we do to the person. Begin to cling more to the gifts than to the giver. And that's the dangerous thing. Because it can slowly take away from us more than it gives. I heard a story one time. This is supposedly true. I don't know that it is. This young couple had gotten married and somebody gave them a wedding shower. And they gathered together and there were all this pile of gifts And one of the gifts was a couple of theater tickets with a string tied to a card. And on the card, written in lipstick was, guess who gave you these tickets? Well, they couldn't guess and they didn't care. (laughs) When the night came, they'd always wanted to see this anyhow. They went out and had a ball. They loved to play. When they came home to their apartment that night, it was completely cleaned out. Every wedding gift was gone. And when they walked in to the bathroom, scrawled on the mirror in that same lipstick was, now you know. It seems like we could count on signs and wonders to grow our faith. But there is a streak of immaturity in us that will eventually leave us emptier than when we began if we depend upon miracles from God to grow our faith. If that is even our first priority. And that's what Jesus is saying here at the beginning. You've all, or many of you, have raised kids. Those of you who haven't raised them have played with nephews and nieces and cousins and so on and so forth. And you get any little kid, two years old, 18 months, whatever, flip them. Watch their hair go like this. And they'll go, ha, 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 And then what do they say? Do it again. When, have you ever flipped a kid one time and he said, boy, that was great. Thanks a lot. That really added to my life. That's enough. Now let's move on to something else. <laughs> Never seen it. Never seen it. Why? Because it appeals to their flesh. They love that. Do it again. 
You know, I did that for an entire, I bet 15 minutes with one of my sons. Flipped him over, his, his hair would go, ha ha, do it again, daddy. Whoop, do it again, daddy. Whoop, do it again, daddy. Do it again, daddy. I mean, the kid was almost ready to throw up. Do it again, daddy. You know, I finally had to call a halt. Time out. We're like that with signs from the Lord, aren't we? You know, do it again, daddy. That felt good. That was fun. That was really fun. Do it again. But I tell you what, there is a point at which we want those signs so much. We want those evident manifestations of the Spirit so much that we don't have to have faith anymore <clears throat> because we can just depend on the signs. We don't have to seek God anymore because we can just depend on the signs. We don't have to wonder anymore. We don't have to trust anymore because we can just depend on the signs. And when that time comes, there is an emptiness inside of us. I know, I've been through this. There's an emptiness inside of us that doesn't quite... You wonder where it went. You're still surrounded by the same signs and wonders, but there's something not quite clicking. It's like in Isaiah 29.8. Remember that, where it, says, where it talks about the guy who is asleep. He says, They shall be like people who when they are asleep are hungry and in their dreams they eat, but when they awake, they are more hungry than before. They shall be like people, it goes on, that are thirsty and in their dreams they drink, but when they awake, they are faint with thirst. Isaiah 29, 8. That's what it's like for people who get all hooked up into a religion that, and that's what it becomes, a religion based on signs and wonders that require signs and wonders in order for the building of faith. That's what it's like. Why? Because there is a, a streak of immaturity in us. There is a flesh in us that desires and lusts and grows as we feed it. And there has to be a balance because the things that we do that increase that flesh decrease our capability to spiritually discern things. Now watch. If you will move on with me, let me tell you why that is. The queen of Sheba shall rise up, <clears throat> I'm sorry, for just as Jonah became a sign to the Ninevites. Notice he says Jonah became a sign to the Ninevites. Didn't give him a sign, he became a sign to the Ninevites. So shall the son of man be to this generation. He won't give him a sign, he will be one, see. And the queen of, of the south shall rise up with the men of this generation at the judgment and condemn them because she came from the ends of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon. And behold, something greater than Solomon is here. And the men of Nineveh shall stand up with this generation at the judgment and condemn it because they repented at the preaching of Jonah. Now, Matthew emphasizes the resurrection. Luke emphasizes the preaching. And I'll tell you why in a minute. At the preaching of Jonah, and behold, something greater than Jonah is here. Now, let's just look at those two examples, see what he's trying to say. If you will turn back to 1 Kings <clears throat> chapter 10, you will get the story of the Queen of the South. 
And let me just point out a a few verses. The Queen of Sheba was not unlike Cleopatra. She had all. I mean, you talk about a spectacular meeting. The Queen of Sheba was the most spectacularly arrayed and accompanied leader in the old world at this time. Coming to the most spectacularly arrayed and, and, and surrounded king Israel ever had. When Jesus talked about the lilies, he said, Solomon in all of his glory. You see, Solomon was a sign for glorious, spectacular surroundings. And so here are these two people who are the very epitome of spectacularism. And what does she come for? Look in the first verse of chapter 10. She came to test him with difficult questions. She came to learn. She came to learn. And the third verse said, Solomon answered all of her questions, and nothing was hidden from the king which he did not explain to her. And when the queen of Sheba perceived all of the wisdom of Solomon, the house that he built, food on his table, and you see now, after she gets the wisdom, she starts to look around at the surroundings. There was no more, her breath was taken away. There's no, no more spirit. She was breathless. She was just that astounded at that wisdom. <clears throat> and then she said, how blessed are your servants who stand before you. In verse 8, how blessed are your servants who stand before you continually and what? Get high pay? <clears throat> Have great retirement benefits? Uh-uh. Who stand before you continually and hear your wisdom. Here were two of the gaudiest, most ostentatious people in the whole world, but yet they were focused in the right thing. She wanted wisdom and knowledge. And Jesus is saying, even in pagan times with a pagan mind, with a carnal setting, she knew enough to seek wisdom. Now, Look in Colossians, if you, want to, if you want to turn over to Colossians. If not, I'll just find it for you. Colossians 2, chapter 3. There's an description to Jesus Christ there. Or 2, verse 3. Chapter 2, verse 3. It says, Christ, in whom, now watch this, are hidden all of the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. Jesus had all wisdom and all knowledge. He, not just partial, like Solomon, all of it. And yet they sought a sign. Do it again, Daddy. Do it again. They didn't have the sense. These were chosen people. They didn't have the sense to look for wisdom and knowledge. They had gotten desensitized over the years to that point. Look at Jonah. He talks about the preaching of Jonah. Jonah had probably one of the most remarkable testimonies ever. I mean, can you imagine how much money, can you imagine the circuit that this guy, the evangelistic circuit that this guy would be on today, living in the belly of a great fish for three days and then being vomited up on shore? Can you imagine the contracts that this guy would have? Can you? I mean, you talk about Rolex on a television show. I mean, this guy would be in. God did that to him. And then the Bible says 
He got vomited up on the dry land and he went to Nineveh and he gave his testimony. No, he didn't. He didn't say a word about being in the belly of the fish. He preached a sermon. And the sermon, get this sermon, tells us what the sermon is. Just wonderful theological points, wonderful illustrations. It all came together in this sermon. This is one of the most remarkable homiletical efforts you've ever heard in your life. Listen to this sermon. Forty days and Nineveh will be overthrown. That was the sermon. Forty days and Nineveh will be overthrown. And what did the people do? These people were sinful. What did they do? They say, where did this Yako come? He smells bad. Where did he come from? You know? <clears throat> Who is this guy to say? Here's what the people did. The very next verse tells you what the people did. Then the people of Nineveh believed in God. And they called a fast and put on sackcloth from the greatest to the least of them. It goes down to tell how the king did the same thing. They repented. They had one sentence in one sermon from the Lord and they repented. And here Jesus Christ is standing the very Son of God before them. And they're asking for another sign. Do us another miracle. Give us another answer. Tell us a formula. Thrill us. Are we any better than this? Do we listen any closer? You've got to ask yourself that question. We as a culture have become tremendously, systematically desensitized. Those of you who are familiar with psychology will know systematic desensitization <clears throat> is a treatment for fears in behavioral psychology. If you have a great fear you are exposed to that, smear, to that fear in small doses. I mean, that's what they do. They take you in a room. If you're, if you're afraid of uh, lions, you know, they'll take you in the room. They'll show you a picture of a cat, you know. Well, you live through that, and, you, and then they'll throw you, show you a video of a cat. And, then the, and they will systematically, over a period of time, expose you to the very source of your fear until you are so desensitized that you can go to the zoo and you can say, there's a lion and I'm not going to, you know, die or anything. That is how you become desensitized. We as a culture have become so desensitized over the years, it's unbelievable. I mean, you got to ask yourself, how did we get from Flipper to Jaws? I mean, how did we get the scariest, the scariest movie that I ever saw was when I was a kid and it was, a, it was a, one of the first horror movies that ever came out in, well, that wasn't Frankenstein or Wolfman or whatever. I mean, this was the mole people. Does anybody remember that movie? The mole people. I mean to tell you, it was horribly scary. As I remember it, and I do, I remember it in my mind because I reran the thing 42 times, didn't sleep for three weeks. Today's, by today's standards, it would be the hokiest thing you've ever heard in your life. Here were guys who were supposedly, supposedly live in subterranean tunnels, and they, they walked around like this all the time, and when they went around the corner, you could actually see the zipper on their costumes. I mean, it was the worst movie you've ever seen in your life. And here they were, here they were they'd go in, and they'd come up through the ground, and they'd grab a babe and take her down into the caverns, and that's the last you saw of her. It's the scariest thing you've ever seen in your life. What's a horror movie like today? Anybody seen any horror movies lately? 
You talk about graphic. I mean, I mean, they, you know, an eyeball comes rolling by and you go, oh, big yawn, an eyeball. You know, I mean, they disembowel, they do. Everything is in slow motion. Everything to the most graphic detail. And the kids sat there and look at that and go, pretty scary. And they go home and sleep. I mean, desensitized. Romance? Golly, remember the wonderful romance movies? I mean, where they ended with a kiss? <laughs> they didn't begin with a kiss. I mean, they ended. I mean, it was like he was, there was moonlight in the background. He was going toward her, you know, and then they just came up and they, ah, you know, you just walked out of your, yeah, it was great. And now they have the most graphic and lewd contortions and gyrations and explicit this and that. Totally desensitized. And you know from recent literature how desensitization works and how you must continue to escalate in your flesh in order to get the same amount of stimulation. You know how that works, see. Well, this culture had gotten to a point where the flesh had been stimulated enough that they couldn't see the spirit anymore. Because you see, those two always war against each other. Do you really think that our flesh quits when we give our lives to God? That it disappears? You know better than that, don't you? It doesn't quit. Romans 6 says it, is no, it no longer has dominion over us. There is no such thing as a Christian coming to you and say, saying, I can't help it. Yes, he can. Scripture says sin no longer has dominion. Before, before we have Christ in our lives, before he's on the throne of our lives, then we are helpless. Sin has dominion in our life. We have no greater power than the flesh to fight it. But afterwards, we have a spiritual power to fight it. And so sin no longer has dominion over us. But the flesh continues in us. And if you will look in 1 Corinthians... You talk about a church that appealed to the flesh. It would be the Corinthian church. The, the Corinthian church lived in the, in the red light district. I mean, they, had, they were surrounded by pagan temples, by fertility rites, by uh, temple prostitutes, by tongues, speaking in tongues, by, by all of these frantic, ecstatic experiences. And so what did the church need to do? Well, the church needed to compete, didn't it? Because there's always that little level in us that we want to compete with other people. We feel like we have to have as good a testimony or as good a choir or as good a sermon or as good of this or as good of that. See? So, so the Corinthian church had a lot of trouble. What was Paul's strategy when he came to the Corinthian church? In chapter 1, verse 22, he knew the Jews. He knew them well enough that they'd ask for signs. And the Greeks would seek wisdom. And now here's his strategy in verse 23. But we preach Christ crucified. Period. He was not going to stimulate that flesh. He was not going to get into, let's compete with the temple of Nirvana over here. Christ is it. You believe it or you don't. He said, well, you know, it was a stumbling block to the Jews and it, it was foolishness to the Gentiles. 
In chapter 2, he said, When I came to you, I did not come with superiority of speech or of wisdom, proclaiming to you the testimony of God. I determined, I made a decision that I would know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. It's the only thing I was going to give you because that was the basic that you needed. You needed to know Jesus. You didn't need any sign from Him. You know that God's alive. You know that He's done things from you, for you in the past. What you need to know now is Jesus Himself. Why? Because in verse 14 of chapter 2, the natural man does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness to him. He cannot understand them because they are spiritually apprehended. There is a consistent struggle going on in our body that sensitizes the spirit or desensitizes the spirit. And when we get involved with things and the flesh takes off on its own. Now, let me say this. It is fun to come here. I have fun when I come here. I love to worship here. I love the songs that kind of make me dance. You ever seen me over here? I just kind of dance and song. You know, I move. I love it. I love the drums. I like to have fun in the Lord. And I like to see what God does. I've watched God heal people here. I've watched wonderful spiritual manifestations of guidance. All of that was of God and all of that is a part of this church family on an individual level. But I know in my mind if Northland ever starts down the road where we have a regular part of every service for this spiritual manifestation or that spiritual manifestation we are going to depart from seeking a personal, individual relationship with God because we are flesh. We are just plain flesh and we've got to admit that and we've got to live like we are did you ever go and hear a whole string of testimonies I mean wonderful testimonies wonderful and we'll have testimonies here from time to time because I want for people to be able to share what God's doing in their life but people delivered from alcohol and drug addiction and prostitution and and just tremendous works of God. And then you sit there and say, well, I never did any of that. I, I must have a poor testimony. I mean, God, I must not have the real thing because I never did any of that in the first place. My testimony isn't as good as that person's testimony. And you start feeling like you're not really involved with God. See, that's flesh. That is pure flesh. Or this person has a Spiritual manifestation. Boy, you wish you had that spiritual manifestation or that spiritual gift. See? The spiritual gift you have is just, you know, you just want to love people. You want to listen to them. That's not quite as exciting. That's flesh. And so, once we start down that road, we put ourselves in a dangerous position. And it's a decision. It's a, you know, why don't we have... And we do, we do, we need to have more solos. We need to have more choir stuff. We need to have all of that stuff. And we're working on that. We're working on that, you know. 
It's not that we're good like we are, but why is the basic worship service at Northland, the body glorifying the Lord, you are the choir, and the word spoken? Because once you get on the other regular stuff, see, I've been in mainline churches. I've been in things where the choir was tops, you know. And matter of fact, people would come and say, thrill me. You know, here I am. You moved me to tears last week. Let's see if you can do it this week, you know. Or they had this wonderful pipe organ, you know. You just think, this is so wonderful. Where's God in all of that? What does that have to do with him? And if we have regular anything, can we not be detracted because we want something more. How many of you have ever gone out of this service and go, eh, you know, it was okay, you know. Don't tell me if you have. It hurt my feelings terribly. <laughs> you know. Well, let me tell you why. This goes right into the next and last section. While our flesh is stimulated... Our drive to seek is decreased. It works just the opposite. Our drive to seek God is decreased. Watch this. No one, after lighting a lamp, puts it away in a cellar, nor under a bushel basket, peck measure, but on a lampstand in order that those who enter may see the light. Now, who is the light? Jesus said, I am the light. I'm the light of the world. Okay? So he is the light who is out in plain view of everybody. Watch this. The lamp, or that which receives the light, that which has to do with the light, of your body is your eye. And when your eye is clear, hoplos, wide open, looking, searching, then your whole body is also full of light. Jesus Christ, wall to wall. You know, if you look for God, you will find him. But when your eye is bad, evil, poneros, it means stingy, it means narrow, it means... Uh, it's just the opposite of Paul saying, um, for I've learned to be content with much or with, if, with little. The contentedness is what he had. This, this means I have to have this particular thing in order to be content. See, this is what I am looking for, and this is the only thing I will accept. If you give me this, then we got a deal. If you don't give me this, we haven't got a deal. See? So when you come to a church and you're saying, this is what would really speak to me today. If you give me this, then we got a deal, Lord. I'll know you're there. If you don't give me this, then we, then we haven't communicated. So it says, look at this. When your eye is bad, your whole body is full of darkness. Then watch out that the light in you may not also be darkness. How many people have you seen that have had wonderful spiritual experiences and they've walked around in darkness somehow? I mean, even the spiritual experiences they had got perverted. They got waylaid. They got misinterpreted. If therefore your whole body is full of light with no dark part in it, it shall be wholly illumined as when the lamp illumines you with its rays. 
Here's the point. In this war between our flesh and our spirit, in this, we either increase one or we increase the other. It's important to have an openness where we will receive God however he comes. That was the fault of the people. Jesus came in a form that they would not accept. They were down there demanding a sign. If, he, if they gave him a sign, if he gave him a sign, they'd believe in him. But he wasn't going to give him a sign. Because it says in 16, uh, I think it's 1631 or 1621, Luke 16, says, if you don't, listen, if you don't believe in the preaching of Moses, you won't even believe in the resurrection of the dead. I mean, it's no good. This, you know, the person wants to go back and warn his brothers, and saying, he's saying, forget it. If they haven't believed what they got, if they cannot believe how I come to them, then there is no sign that will speak to them. Jesus continued to do miracles after this, but there was not a sign for an unbelieving generation. You either take him for what he's offering or you don't get anything. So watch. Jesus is saying we have to be open. We have to receive it if it's there. I read an interesting statistic this week. It's about the Grand Cayman Island. You, you all have, Grand Cayman is about halfway between Jamaica and Cuba. And for those of you folks, and I have never been there, but for those of you folks who have never heard of it, it's inhabited by about 6,000 descendants of old pirates and other seafaring souls, you know. Um, and, of course, the natives see these huge deluge of tourists every year trying to go down and relieve tension and all that kind of stuff. But the island itself is absolutely beautiful and peaceful, marvelous. They don't have a lot there that would make you tense. I mean, they don't. They go to church often. They drink a lot of booze. <laughs> they don't have income taxes. They don't have real estate taxes. Um, the, the island is covered with orchids. The water is warm and clear and calm. It's a paradise. But yet, the two, according to recent medical statistics, the two leading illnesses for the natives, not the, not the visiting tourists, the natives on that island, are hypertension and anxiety neurosis. How can you live in a paradise and be a nervous wreck? Simple. You don't let it in. It's right in front of it. You don't let it in. And that's what Jesus is saying. You've got to be wide open. You've got to make sure that no matter what of God is there, you don't miss it because you're looking for Jesus and not for your own thing. I left the church one time and they sent a man there who was... It was questionable. I mean, whether or not the guy was a Christian. Um, now, let's not get into this when you leave a church and when you don't leave a church and all that kind of stuff. I'm not, I'm not into that. I, I really believe that, you know, if, if, a, if a person is a spiritual, if a person is seeking God, you stick it out. Okay? No matter how crummy, you stick it out. But if the person is not a Christian, you know that, that the, the, the spiritual level of the church is never going to exceed that of the spiritual leaders. You know, so you've got to seek other, other spiritual authority. I mean, that's just, but nobody could tell whether or not this guy was a believer. I mean, it was just not one of those things. And, and so people were leaving in droves and, and, and I, and there was one guy who I had tremendous respect for 
And I, think, I thought to myself, I wonder what Joe's doing with all this. Because this guy was a spiritual giant. I love this guy. And I met him about a year later. He came down. He's going through Orlando. Everybody goes through Orlando. And he called me up and called me, you know, and we got together for lunch. He had the most wonderful, wonderful lunch. But he didn't mention the church. And so I couldn't stand it anymore. At the end of the lunch, I said, so Joe. He said, what? I said, what do you think about the church? And Joe said, you know, everybody says that, you know, the preaching is horrible and things have gone down the tubes and so on and so forth. But every Sunday I go, I get something from God. Now, that didn't say anything about the church. It said something about Joe. Because he was seeking. He was determined that he would hear from God. The very rocks would cry out. Jesus said, listen, I know you're telling me to shut up. I know you're telling them to shut up. But if my disciples didn't tell you who I was, if you had hapless eyes, if you had generous, open spirits, you'd get the message from the rocks. You will hear from me as you search. Well, what's the point of it all? Golly, how about that? <laughs> We're at the end here. Huh? Pretty good, huh? They said it couldn't be done. Flesh. <laughs> what's the point of it all? The point of it is this. That God wants to take away from us everything that would build up our carnal minds and give to us everything that will build up our spirit. He wants to take away from us everything that will deteriorate in our minds because while we have all had wonderful spiritual experiences, you can't live on those. You can't live on those. The only thing that is the same yesterday, today, and forever is Jesus Christ. So, God wants to give us something of increasing benefit. And he wants to eradicate all of those things in our lives that would give us over to the flesh, even the spiritual experiences. If you would just turn to Galatians 5. Let me show you this. Five twenty-four. Now those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and its desires. You know that even applies to spiritual signs and wonders. So that he can give us something that is real and that will last forever. Remember the story I used to tell about the little girl pop beads? Can I tell that again? I love that story. It was about a little girl. You remember when some of us were younger and there were these marvelous wax pearls called pop beads? And you could put them together. They came in different colors and you could put different colors of them together or you could, you could put them any length and they'd pop in and out. Every one of them popped. Well, this little girl was walking down the street with her mom and went past the Ben Franklin five and dime store 
<clears throat> and in the window were these pot beads. And she saw those pot beads and she loved them. I mean, at first sight, she wanted those pot beads. Her mother was a very wise mother. And she said, <clears throat> yes, you can have the pot beads, but I want you to earn the money for them. And they cost some humongous amount of money, like $1.29 or something like that. Humongous to a little girl. But that little girl determined in her heart, as the Bible would say, that she would earn the money for those pot beads. And so the parents both watched this little girl do jobs, you know, and she worked. Three weeks later, she had enough money for those pot beads. <clears throat> and she was a woman with jewelry now. And she put those around her neck and she wore them all day, every day, even when she went to bed at night. She'd put her little nightie on and she'd put her pot beads on and she'd sleep in those pot beads. <clears throat> well, one night, as she was going to bed, she was wandering around a little nightie and it was time for her to go to bed and every night she'd hop on her daddy's lap, you know, and he'd tell her her stuff, you know, Sleep tight, don't let the bed bugs bite. And then they'd pray together, you know. And it was a wonderful time. And that particular night, she hopped up there, and they got all done with this, their, their stuff and got all done with their prayers. And he looked at her and she said, he said, Honey, do you love me? And she said, Well, Daddy, you know I love you. Well, he said, Well, then give me your pot beads. Oh, you could, oh, she looked at him. She was kind of scared. She said, oh, silly boys don't wear pop beads. And she got down. And she ran into her bedroom. <clears throat> Next night. She was a little tentative about hopping up in his lap. But she hopped up in his lap. And they did the sleep tight. Don't let the bed bugs bite. You know, say prayers. You know, include daddy in your prayers and so on and so forth. And, and then they prayed together and. And sure enough, at the end, he said, Honey, do you love me? She said, Yes, Daddy, I do. He said, Well, then give me your pop beads. She said, I just can't. And she went into her bedroom. The next night, she didn't come to him. And the next night, she didn't come to him. And finally, she missed her dad too much. She crawled up in his lap and they went through their nighttime routine and they said their prayers and the question came again, do you love me? Yes, Daddy, I do. And give me your beads. She took them from around her neck and he took them in his hand and threw them into the fire. And she watched them burn. Then he reached in his pocket and pulled out the most beautiful string of real pearls you've ever seen in your life. And he fastened them around his little girl's neck and said, I love you too. Signs and wonders are wonderful things. But God has something more wonderful still. And that's himself. This morning, if you would lay on the altar any demand you are making of God, 
any request you are making of him. And you would trust him. And you would search for him and find him in all areas of your life. He will give you something lasting. More lasting than any religious experience you've had so far in your life. More lasting than any religious conclusion you've come to so far in your life. Just seek him. Pray with me. Lord God, we are flesh. And that's not all bad because you've made us to be people of wonderful enjoyment. You've made us to enjoy you. And so we are not ashamed of our enjoyment. But we realize, Lord, that there comes a time when we make fleshly things out of spiritual things because that's the tendency we have. And we want you to be like we are. As it says in Psalm 50, 21, you thought I was just like you. Lord, we know you're not. There are some of us who have been praying prayers that would say, Lord, if you will do this for me, if you will show me this, then I will believe in you. Then I will place my whole life in you. Let us reverse that order this morning. Let us lay down on this altar whatever dreams and desires we have that we think are yours so that you can give us what is truly yours. And let us love you with a generous eye and a wide open heart that no matter what you do with our lives, no matter what you do in our lives, we'll always be able to come and hop up in your lap and call you Daddy. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. I could work the miracles before your eyes. If I could change the rain to clear blue skies. If I could open up the blind. Lord, we, pray, we appreciate being able to come before you this morning. We thank you that you hear our voices. We thank you that you accept this gift of worship to you. We thank you that uh, we're not here to be entertained, but we're here to seek you and to worship you. 
Father, we thank you that uh, for all the reasons that we shouldn't worship you, you have provided us the main reason that we should. And that is that you have called us to call out to you. Father, we don't know how to do that sometimes, but we are grateful that you have shown us and you have heard us. Father, we pray now that as Joel comes that we could hear the words that you have given him. We thank you for him and his message, for the preparation, the time that he has listened to you, so that now we in turn can listen. Father, we do pray that you would teach us some things this morning. We do pray that as we leave here, we would be people that have been challenged and heard what you would have us do. Again, we love you. We are here to worship you, and we thank you for being here with us. We pray these things in the name of your Son, Jesus, the one who makes it possible, and for his sake, amen. Isn't that a great song? <laughs> Thanks for indulging us <clears throat> that moment of foolishness. We can think of no better way to introduce a message <clears throat> than to let you listen to a bit of shallowness. If you would open your scriptures, if you have them with you, to this 11th chapter of Luke, we'll tell you how this all ties in. We are going from the ridiculous, hopefully, to the sublime this morning. Just as astrology has deteriorated over the years, you know, astrology used to be a way that people would use one of many ways for people to seek God before the gospel, before Jesus Christ ever came. Much before the Old Testament ever came, astrology was used. And God himself used signs and wonders in the heavens to announce the coming of Jesus Christ. In Matthew chapter 2, verse 2, the Magi have arrived in Jerusalem and they say, Where is he who has been born King of the Jews? For we saw his star in the east and have come to worship him. In other words, God even used astrology. Signs and wonders when people would seek any way they could to understand God's will for their lives. But you hear from the song and you know from experience what has happened to astrology over the years. Divine guidance is completely excluded from this now silly and archaic science. It's used in bars to get to first base with girls. It's used in investment, uh, for investment purposes to know when you're, you know, whatever is falling. <laughs> um, it's used as a rabbit's foot would be used or as a, as a biorhythm would be used or in any conglomerate of substitute seeking for divine guidance. What God would have us understand is that any sign and any wonder, even when they are from Him, can eventually become more of a detriment to you, more of a substitute for Him than never having experienced it at all. Let's look in the 11th chapter. And you remember last week we preached about um, Jesus had just cast out a demon 
And there were basically two groups of people. One that said that was from Beelzebul. You know, obviously the devil was in this. And so he spoke to them. Then there was a second group of people, and that's the group to whom he speaks this week. The second group are the people who just want a sign. Now notice he has just given them a sign. He has just done a miracle. But their response is, and others to test him were demanding of him a sign from heaven. And the scriptures literally say, the Greek literally says, tempting a sign out of heaven, they sought from him. In other words, their attention wasn't even on Jesus. It was, come on, baby, come on, give me, come on, come on, give me a sign, come on. Let's do it. Can you do this? Do it. Okay, that's the picture. Do it for us. Come on, give me a sign. Make me feel good. There is a string in us, a um, a reaction in us, a tendency in us that is very childlike and very fleshly. And that is, no matter how many times we get thrilled, we always want to get thrilled one more time. And no matter how big a thrill it is, we always want one more, one little bigger than that. It's born in us from when we were little. You know, when have you ever, have you ever just <clears throat> gone up to a nephew or niece or your son? I used to do this with my kids. Just flip them over. You know, just take them and flip them over. Have you ever in your life seen a kid say, thank you, that was very good, now let's just go on to something else here. No. They say, what, what do they say? Do it again. <clears throat> do it again. I literally did that 15 minutes with one of my kids one morning. Do it again, Daddy. Do it again. Do it again. <laughs> do it again. <laughs> and he just got hyped up and hyped up. Do it again. Do it again. Do it again. I finally had to call time out, you know. That's how many of us are with signs and wonders. Now, before I even begin to speak here, let me say this. God does signs and wonders. You have experienced them in your life, and they were real and they were from God as a way to evidence himself to you and to form a relationship with you. So I do not want any part of this message to ever make you not open and not welcome and not joyfully accept the signs and wonders God has for you. But God would have us understand this this morning, that there is something about experiencing those spiritual manifestations. There's something about seeking signs and wonders from God that after a while leaves us more empty and more bewildered than we were before because we now have gotten into a flesh pattern where we want it to thrill us. We want it to prove to us so that we don't have to trust. We want something ahead of time, see? We want to hedge our bets. And after a while, you will notice that even people who have gone through the most wonderful spiritual experiences are empty. They don't get any help from that anymore. There is something that seems like, <clears throat> seems like it's a gift, but it ends up to be a thief. I heard a story one time. Apparently it's true. I don't know. Um, I read it in a book that claimed it was true. But a couple had gotten married and somebody threw a wedding shower for them and there were dozens of friends that came in, dozens and dozens, and, and loaded them with presents. And one of the presents 
was a pair of theater tickets tied together. And on the other end of the string was a note written in lipstick that said, guess who gave these tickets to you? Well, they couldn't guess. But when the night came, they went out to the theater. They loved it. They'd been wanting to see that play for a long time. And when they got home, their apartment was completely cleaned out. And they walked into the bathroom and the same lipstick on the mirror said, now you know. You see, there are things that seem like a gift, but they leave us empty. They rob us. Nothing from God will ever rob you, but our appetites, our desires can rob us because they leave us wanting something more narrow than God would have for us, something more limited than God would have for us. There's a passage in Scripture, Isaiah 29, 8, that is wonderful. It talks about people who are asleep. And it says, and they shall be asleep, it shall be as a hungry man, when he is asleep, who dreams that he is eaten, but yet when he awakens, he is very hungry. And again, it says, they shall be as people who were thirsty when they were asleep, and they dreamed that they drank, but yet when they awoke, they were faint with thirst. Some of the religious experiences that we have that we believe are the foundation of our faith leave us hungry because there's only one foundation of our faith, and that's Jesus Christ. And so even though we think we are satisfied, it ends up we're not satisfied. We continue to hunger, you see, until God gives us something real. It's important to note that here were people who had just seen a sign. Now, these are believers. These are Jews. And, and Matthew has them as the Pharisees. These are believers. And all they can say after they've seen a sign is, give us a sign. Give us another one. Do it again, Daddy. Come on, let's see you do it again. And the crowds were increasing, and he began to say, this generation is a wicked generation. It seeks for a sign, and yet no sign shall be given to it but the sign of Jonah. Now watch this. Does that mean that after this he never again did a miracle? No, he did miracles after this, didn't he? That means that this generation was so closed on its own way that they would not recognize the things he'd already done. Except the sign of Jonah... For just as Jonah became a sign to the Ninevites, so shall the Son of Man be to this generation. The Queen of the South shall rise up, that's the Queen of Sheba, shall rise up with the men of this generation at the judgment and condemn them, because she came from the ends of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon. Behold, and behold, something greater than Solomon is here. In other words, when we stand at the judgment, all of the saints who have stood before with God are going to be there at our side. And there are going to be some people who believed and there are going to be some people who didn't believe. And we will come under condemnation because there were people with less to believe in than we ever had, but believed more. I'll show you in a minute. 
The men of Nineveh shall stand up with this generation at the judgment and condemn it because they repented at the preaching of Jonah. Now, Matthew emphasizes the resurrection. Luke doesn't. He emphasizes the preaching, and I'll show you why in a minute. And behold, something that greater than Jonah is here. No one, after lighting a lamp, puts it away in a cellar, nor under a peck measure, a bushel basket, but on a lampstand, in order that those who enter may see the light. Now, who is the light? It's Jesus, isn't it? Jesus is saying, I'm right out here in the open. I am right here. I am not, there's nothing hidden in me. Okay. Now, the lamp of your body, the way that the light gets in, this is, this is a, the tool for light. The lamp of your body is your eye. And when your eye is clear, and the Greek word is hoplos, it means wide open, means generous. It means seeking, looking. When, you're, when your eye is clear, when it's wide open, ready for anything, your whole body is full of light, full of Jesus. But when it is bad, the Greek word is poneros, it means stingy or narrow. It means, it means this. If you'll give me this, then we'll communicate. If you won't, we're off. Okay? This is my demand. This is how I will believe in you. But unless I have this, I'm not going to recognize you at all. That is ponderous. You are focused in on one thing. Can't see anything else. Okay? <clears throat> but if your eye is bad, or the, then King James says evil, giving somebody the evil eye. You know, when you give somebody the evil eye, you look down on them, don't you? Because you don't see what you like. And you're not going to look up to them until you see what you like, what you demand. Okay. Your whole body is full of darkness. Then watch out that the light in you may not be darkness. Now here, here is an interesting phrase because the works that Christ has done, the relationship that we have had with Jesus Christ can actually be, begin to be a spiritual impediment. Because we can begin to reinterpret that in ways that it was not originally, in our own ways instead of God's way. Therefore, your whole body is full of, uh, therefore, if, if therefore your whole body is full of light with no dark part in it, it shall be totally illumined as when the lamp illumines you with its rays. There is a part of us that wants to get thrilled, wants to get thrilled, you know, and so, with anything, spiritual or not, that fleshly, carnal part of us is going to seek it and try to get more of it. Now, when you become a Christian, that part does not die. When you become a Christian and you got thrilled with worldly things, you're going to want to become thrilled with spiritual things. I mean, that's how we are. The thrill part still stays there. And this is what Jesus is saying. Watch out for that. Because it had infected this generation of people so much that they could not recognize the Son of God. He gave them two instances that said, you are without excuse. Let me show them to you. In 1 Kings chapter 10, it talks about the Queen of Sheba coming to Solomon. Now, I want you to know that at this time, you could not have asked for more pageantry than this meeting. Solomon was the most gloriously arrayed king of all of Israel's history. Not even David was like Solomon. 
Jesus said, Solomon in all of his glory. Solomon was synonymous with showiness and, and ostentation and, and, and gaudiness. And, you know, if anybody had it, Solomon had it. The Queen of Sheba, likewise, was kind of like Cleopatra. So here come the two most spectacularly arrayed leaders in the ancient world. But in the midst of all that spectacularism, what are they seeking? Look in the first verse. She came to test him with difficult questions. She wanted his wisdom. Just simply wanted the wisdom of God. That's what she was after. She ignored all of the spectacular and she, she drove in. She wanted answers from God. She wanted answers from God. In verse 8, she said, after hearing all, he answered all of her questions from God, she was so thrilled. She said, how blessed are your men and how blessed are these servants. Why? Because <clears throat> the retirement benefits are wonderful. Because their pay is way above minimum wage. Because I'm sure that they, you know, you have, you get, they party down after work. No. Here is why they are blessed. Who stand before you continually and hear your wisdom. In the, in the midst of all of those riches, they came, she came and asked for wisdom. And she was pagan. Flat pagan. She didn't know the Lord. Now contrast that with people who have Jesus Christ standing in front of them. And scripture says in Colossians 2.3, it says this. Christ Jesus in whom are hidden all the treasures. I'm sorry. In whom are hidden the treasures of all wisdom and knowledge. All wisdom and knowledge. Not partial like Solomon had. All of it is in Jesus Christ. And he's standing there. And they just asked him for another sign. Let me give you the second example. Jonah. Jonah, as you well know, was swallowed by a great fish. Now, can you imagine the testimony circuit that Jonah would be on these days? I mean, can you? Can, I mean, you talk, about, you talk about making bucks. Could you make some bucks if you were in the belly of a fish for three days? I mean, every Christian would want you to come and just testify, brother. How, how was that? Can you talk about wearing a Rolex on your television show? I mean, this guy, these days and those days too, would have had it made. But the Bible says this. At the end of chapter 2, verse 10 says, and Then the Lord commanded the fish, and it vomited Jonah up on the dry land. And Jonah went to Nineveh, and what? Gave his testimony? Boy, I was in this fish. You guys should have seen it. It was gross. I lit a candle, scratched thing on the wall. It, it was really, and then the Lord just delivered me out of that. He never said a word about being in the belly of that fish. Not one word. What did he say? He preached a sermon. And the text of the sermon is in here. It's a wonderful theological sermon. I mean, look at all the points. Verse... Um, Four there in, in chapter 3 is the text of the sermon. Wonderful illustrations. Doesn't it just thrill your heart to be preached to like that? Let me just read it for those of you who don't have your scripture. Here's the sermon. Forty days and Nineveh will be overthrown. That's it. I mean, that's the sermon. 
And he's going to a pagan people who are landishly, outlandishly sinful. And what do they say? Do they say, why do we listen to this guy? He smells bad. Do you ever smell anything like that? No, I haven't smelled anything like that. He smells bad. Or did they say, that wasn't a very good sermon this, this week, dear. Uh, did you get much out of that? No, I didn't get much out of that. Well, you know, maybe, maybe, it's, maybe the, the spirit's just not in there anymore. He had one sentence. Forty days and Nineveh will be overthrown. You know the effect on the people? It's in the very next sentence. And then the people of Nineveh believed in God. They responded to that one sentence sermon. That was it. They believed in God and they repented. They turned their ways, the Bible says, from the, from the greatest to the least of them. The king on down, they repented. And Jesus Christ is standing in front of them. The mystery of the ages. The son of God. And what are they saying? Give us another sign. Do it again. They condemn. Now why? Because they had become systematically desensitized through their culture. The same thing that's happening to us. Let me share this with you. Those of you who know psychology know that in behavioral psychology, in the Skinnerian branch of psychology, and others as well, they have what they call systematic desensitization. And that's a way to deal with your fears. And how you deal with your fears are this. And when you're afraid of something, say you're afraid of lions, okay? You go in a room and they expose you to the very thing you're afraid of in little bits. They will show you a picture of a kitty cat, you know? And you go, well, I lived through that. I mean, you'll break out in a sweat, but you'll get up and walk out and say, Phew, I lived through that. A few days later, you'll go in and you'll watch a video of a kitty cat, you know? And then a video of a cat. And then a video, you know, and so on and so forth. And then they will escalate the stimulation the exposure to the very thing you fear until you have become desensitized to it. And you can go to the zoo and go like this at the lions, you know, so that you are no longer afraid. You are systematically desensitized. Can I share with you that that same thing is happening in our culture? We are becoming desensitized. How did we get from flipper to jaws, you know? How did we get, remember the old monster, I mean the old monster movies were so stupid and so scary. The first monster movie I ever watched was called The Mole People. And it was absolutely hokey. I mean, here are these guys wandering around in subterranean tunnels, going like this in subterranean tunnels, and then they'd reach up and grab some babe, take her down in the ground, you never saw her again. And then they'd focus, going down, you know, down through the tunnels. And when they'd go around the corner, I mean, honest, honest to goodness, you could see the zipper in the back of their costume. It was such a bad movie. I didn't sleep for three weeks. It was awful. I was sure they were going to come get me. I knew it. It was awful. Today, have you seen any scary movies lately? You talk about graphic I mean, eyeballs rolling everywhere, the balls come out, you know. Somebody told me last night on WOFL that, uh, that the che Texas Chainsaw Massacre was on unedited, you know. And our kids watch that and go, big yawn, you know. Go back and go to sleep. I mean, they don't care. You know, it's just a story. Totally desensitized. Remember the old romance pictures? Boy, were they something. I mean, they ended with a kiss. Remember that? They didn't begin with a kiss. 
I mean, it was like moonlight, you know, and he's going toward her, you know, and baby, the credits roll, and you just walk out of there going, ah. I mean, it was wonderful. It's not like that anymore, is it? I won't go into that part of what, what's... But romance is gone. Stimulation is there. And you both know from the words of Ten Bundy and both know from just common sense how much that stimulation must escalate in order to reach the same level of fulfillment. That is the strain of flesh in us that fights against a spiritual understanding. Now, let me show you something. If you have your scriptures, turn to 1 Corinthians, and you'll see a contest going on. 1 Corinthians. Now, the Corinthian church, if any church was given to taking off into being absolutely enraptured with signs and wonders, this would be it. Because they were surrounded with pagan... um, Churches, or not churches, pagan uh, religious temples. There was the temple of Aphrodite that had its own temple prostitutes. There were, and most of these were fertility cults. Fertility cults, and you know how attractive those can be. You know, come join our church. And how attracted people would be to them. And they had all kinds of ecstatic experiences going on in that church. Now, if you're in one church and all of these other uh, temples are around you, there's a little bit of competition that kind of creeps in, in there, you know? So as much as they speak in tongues, you want to speak in tongues because your God's as great as their God, right? And as much as they perform miracles, you want to perform miracles because your God's as great as theirs is, right? And so this is the church to whom Paul wrote. And he knew that they would be fired up for this signs and wonders business. And he knew the tendency of us all to want miracles instead of truth. To want something that we had to put our lives, or the, to want something that we wouldn't have to put our lives on the line for, just have God demonstrate for us of His wonderful glory. Have thrills. And what did He write to them? Look at the first chapter. He said, the Jews, in verse 22, said, the Jews ask for signs, and the Greeks search for wisdom. But we preach what? Christ crucified. We preach Christ crucified. That's all we got. I'm not going to tell you to go out and jump off a temple and see if God will save you. I'm not going to tell you to go out and try to multiply bread. I'm not going to try and tell you to go out and heal more than the other people. No more than the other temple heals. I'm not going to tell you that. I'm going to tell you about Jesus. And you have a choice of either believing in Jesus for who he is or not. Now he realizes that to Jews who love signs, that's going to be a stumbling block. And to Greeks who are very erudite and love wisdom, that'll be foolishness. But that's all he got. That's all he's offering. If you look down in verse 2, I'm sorry, chapter 2, verse 1. He says, I did not come with superiority of speech or of wisdom proclaiming to you the testimony of God. Watch what he decided. For I determined to do nothing among you, to know nothing among you, but Jesus Christ and him crucified. That was it. 
I'm not going to rev you all up. I'm not going to do it. Why? Because if you can't believe in what I preach, you're not going to believe. There's not going to be any sign large enough to, have, to let you in on real faith. Conversely, if you can believe in Jesus Christ, if you can lean on Him, if you can form a personal relationship, you'll see signs everywhere. Things that other people don't see. Because you will be nurturing the spiritual discernment part of you instead of the flesh part of you. In chapter 3 of that same book, it talks about the things of the Spirit are not discerned by the flesh because they cannot be seen by the flesh, but only by the Spirit. And that's what Paul is talking to the church at Corinth about. Now, let me ask you, do you ever walk out of here and say, gee, I wish I could, wish they had a big choir there. I used to love choirs, you know. They just thrill me to tears. Now, we need a choir. I, I, we'll get a choir. Don't worry about it. We'll, I mean, from time to time, we'll have a choir. We're getting organized one of these days. But did you ever walk out of here and say, gee, I wish, wish they had testimonies. I love testimonies. I just love them, you know. We ought to have testimonies every Sunday. And I agree. We ought to have more testimonies. We're going to have more testimonies. We're working on that. <laughs> Solos, you know. Touch my heart, you know. Get me. Pull me out. Sermons? Wouldn't you like to hear a good sermon? <laughs> but let me tell you the tendency. When was the last time you heard several testimonies and started in your own mind to rank them? Well, that was a good testimony. Well, that wasn't, you know, that was okay. When was the last time you heard a testimony of how Christ, and they're absolutely true. I do not doubt any testimony I've heard, but how Christ pulled somebody out of the dregs of, of drug addiction, pulled somebody out of the dregs of... Uh, um, prostitution, pulled somebody out, and it just wonderful, and how he did wonderful signs and miracles, and you're sitting there going, man, mine's not as good as that. You know, I, maybe, you know, I've never really done any of that stuff. Maybe he hasn't really got me. Maybe, why doesn't he do something for me as miraculous as, as he did for her? See how the flesh just begins to take off into a spirit of competition. Did you ever walk in a church that was having a choir festival? What do you do? At first, you sit down and you listen to this wonderful choir music. It bathes you. I mean, it's wonderful. And you begin to just love God because he's so evident in the music. And after about the fourth choir, you start ranking them in your mind. Well, this choir isn't as good as this choir, you know. Or, boy, that, that tenor was just off key. And you lose it, don't you? What was happening? Why? Because the flesh part of you has taken off far beyond the spiritual part. The flesh part exceeded the spiritual part. We're all like that. We're all like that. So to have any group that concentrates 
on religious signs and wonders and has as its goal to have those signs and wonders happen, it ends up a flesh group. I don't care how spiritual you are. I don't care what words you say. You walk out of there, and many times you walk out of there, and you are more empty than when you walked in because you got wrapped up in the flesh. It is so important to know that it is not what you're looking for, it's who you're looking for. That you ought to be able to find Jesus in anything. In anything. That's the, having the hoplos eye. Not coming in to be entertained, not coming in to be, you know, thrilled, not coming in to be stimulated, coming in to search. Search for Jesus. God, how can I find what you have to say to me in all of this? What are you talking to me about? Speak to me and I'll listen. And I don't care what it is, I will hear you. Show me. Speak to me. I will search for you. It was interesting a few years ago I read a book about a community, an island really, called the Grand Cayman. Anybody ever been to the Cayman Islands? Uh, the Grand Cayman. It's an island about, uh, it's, it's midway between Cuba and Jamaica. And it has honored about 6,000 natives who are descendants of pirates and other seafaring souls. And of course it's got all of these tourists that go down every year to relax. And I was, I had just gotten done um, wondering how people could miss such obvious, how I could miss such obvious spiritual teaching. I had just listened to one of my favorite preachers, you know, and had gotten nothing out of it. And I thought, how did I, you know, there had to be something in there. I didn't get anything out of that. Well, I read this statistic about this island. Now, for, the Cayman, for those of you who don't know anything about the Grand Cayman Island, it's, it's a paradise. I mean, it is. Um, they go to church a lot. They drink a lot. <laughs> the two things that would calm the nerves. Um, they don't have any income tax. They don't have any property tax. Uh, the, the island is full of beautiful orchids. The smell's wonderful. The water is clear and warm and calm. It's a paradise. The particular statistic I read was about the two most common ailments on that island of the natives, not of the tourists. Would you like to guess what, it are, what they are? Hypertension and anxiety neurosis. And you think to yourself, how in the world can you live in the middle of a paradise and still be a nervous wreck? And the answer is it's real simple. You just don't take it in. You just don't avail yourself of what is out there. Because you're so busy doing your little business here and there that you never stop to soak in the surroundings of God. Well, that's exactly what this thing is saying. Jesus is standing forth. The light of the world is right before them and their bodies full of darkness. Why? Because they're not taking it in. 
They're, they're in their own little religiosity. Here's what I want from you, Lord. This is what I have to have from you, Lord. This is what it'll take for me to believe in you, Lord. And they never, ever take him in on his basis. Never. You know true spirituality? True spirituality has a lot in common with very immature spirituality. You know that? Some people who are not yet in the church, when they first believe in God, see God all over the place. I mean, they'll turn on the radio and they'll, they'll, they'll no matter what's on, God will be talking to them. You ever hear, you ever know that? Remember when you first got converted? They'll get in a conversation completely, totally unrelated to anything religious and they'll hear God's voice. They'll see what God wants for them. They'll see something in their life that they could offer up for God. That's somebody totally immature. But of course, then you get involved in a church and then you start growing in Christ and you know how you ought to feel now. I mean, you got all the lingo down. You know all of the religious experiences that you want to have that everybody else has had. And so, all of a sudden, see... You're spiritually dry. And you weren't spiritually dry when you believed as a little child, but you're spiritually dry now. What happened? Your flesh got a hold of you. And it started to say, to be religious, you've got to do this and this and this. You've got to have this experience. You've got to have this experience. You've got to have this experience. You know, the very mature religious people are the people who become again like a little child and they can see God everywhere they look. Doesn't have to have any religious symbol on it. Doesn't have to have any religious cadence, any religious saying. They see the Lord Jesus Christ everywhere they look. Jesus said, if there were nothing to identify there, if there were nobody pointing to me, the stones would cry out. You would still be able to see me if you had a hoplos eye, if you have a generous eye, someone that will take no matter what there is, and since me. I've told you that one church I left, the pastor that came in, um, didn't really know where he was spiritually. And, uh, and I know that, you know, everybody, people swap churches with some regularity. I know that. And, and there may be come a time when you swap church because you don't know what's happening here. And that's okay, wherever the Lord leads you. But there is, there's just a principle that I have about that, and that is that if, if the pastor has a sincere heart is sincerely seeking the Lord, you stick with it. You know, it it's a family. It's a covenant. But if the pastor really doesn't know the Lord and is just in there operating an institution, then you've got to get out. Because, watch, because you can't go any higher than that. You can't go any higher in a church than the spiritual leaders are. So it's a real important aspect that the pastor be on board. Well, nobody could tell whether or not this pastor was on board, whether he was a believer, you know? And so some people stayed and some people left. This has happened in several churches. There was one guy that I wondered about because I had a tremendous respect for him spiritually. I'd had many conversations and I thought, man, this guy is out of there. I mean, he can tell, he can tell, he has a spirited discernment. He can tell in a minute where this guy is spiritually. And I bet he's out of there. I didn't talk with him for a year. 
A year later, he's coming through to where I lived. He stops. We have this wonderful lunch together. He didn't mention the church at all. So finally, I couldn't stand any longer. I said, look, what happened? Are you still at the church or what? And he just sat there and he said, you know, I am still there. He said, people keep talking like, you know, this guy doesn't know the Lord and these are bad sermons and all that kind of stuff. But every time I go, I hear the Lord speak to me. Now, that didn't say much about the church. It said something about the man. What did he have? He had a hopeless eye. Even if there was no verbal testimony, there was a testimony of God. He could see God in anything. That's what Jesus is saying. I'm there. I'm, what are you looking for that you're looking for more than me? What do you want that I have to give you in order for you to come close to me? Whatever it is, you're not going to get it. There's not going to be a sign for this generation as long as you want that more than you want me. It's just that simple. Because you know what? If I give it to you, you're going to end up chasing other things instead of me. There are very wonderful experiences we've all had with the Lord. But you can't live on those. The only thing that is the same yesterday, today, and forever is Jesus Christ. That's the only thing that is the same. In Galatians 5.21 it says, For he who has been crucified with Christ has crucified the flesh. And that's what Jesus is trying to tell us today. That's what he would say to you today. Is whatever religious experience you seek, lay it down and come to me. No matter what you think you have to have to be religious, look for me everywhere you go. Listen for me everywhere you are and I'll be there. And when you listen to me, you will have something that does not deteriorate but goes up in value over the years. Let me tell you another story and then I'll quit. It's about, some of you have heard this before. I told it years ago about the little girl in the pot beads. Remember that? Blank. <laughs> okay, I'll tell it again. And don't forget it this time. Remember years ago when we were young and they had wonderful little thing called pop beads. They're little pearls, you know? And each one of them popped in the other one and you could make them any length and you could make them any color. You could interchange the color. They were wonderful. Well, this little girl's walking down the street with her mother and stopped to look in the window of a Ben Franklin five and dime store. Remember Ben Franklin stores? And they had in the window these wonderful pop bead pearls. And she just thought they were the most wonderful thing she had ever seen. And she asked her mom. Now her mom said, honey, you can have those if you earn the money for them. Well, they were some exorbitant price, like $1.29 or something. And she didn't know whether she could do it, but she wanted them. She wanted them. So she worked and worked and worked. And both her mom and dad saw her throughout the coming weeks. They didn't make it easy on her. They saw her throughout the, the coming weeks save enough money 
to go in that store one day and buy those pop beads. And I mean to tell you, the minute she bought those, she put them around her neck and she did not take them off. She bathed with them on. When she went to bed at night, she'd put her little flannel stuff on and put them around her neck and walk around. She was a woman of jewelry now. She'd walk around with them and she was a sight to behold. One night after they had eaten, her dad was sitting in front of the fire as is usual and it was time for her to go to bed and she was going around looking in the mirror, looking at her pop beads, you know, kind of posing how you do. And she went to crawl up in her daddy's lap, as was the custom, and her daddy told her her midnight stuff, her, her, her nighttime stuff, you know, don't let the bed bugs bite, you know, include me, say a prayer for me, you know, sleep tight, all that kind of stuff. And then they prayed together, as they always did. And at the end of that prayer, he said, honey, you love those pop beads, don't you? She said, yes, I do, Dad. He said, do you love me? She said, well, of course I do. He said, well, then give me the pop beads. She looked at him, and it was awful. She didn't know how to get out of it. So she said, oh, boys don't wear pop beads, silly, and got down, ran in her room, shut the door, retired for the evening. Next night, the same thing happened. There it was in front of the fire again. She went a little bit more tentatively up to him and crawled up in his lap, and he said his nighttime stuff to her, and they said prayers, and then the question she was hoping would not come came. Honey, do you love me? Yeah, Daddy, I do. Then give me your pop beads. She looked at him and she said, I just can't. And got down and went in her room. The next night, she didn't even come up to him. She just went straight to bed. And then another night. And then another night. And finally, she couldn't stand it any longer. She missed her daddy too much. And after supper, she crawled up in his lap. And he told her bedtime stuff. And they said their prayers. And sure enough, he did it again.